Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 33, Jesus Does It For Us. In this final episode of the season, we're discussing the last chapters of John's Gospel with our friend Brad Jerzak. Our conversation started with a question about the nature of eternal life. Specifically, why do we automatically assume that eternal life only begins after we die? I think that the most obvious reason is because that Earth isn't heaven yet, and I still experience uh, the effects of of a broken world, and so it's the it's the classic now but not yet thing. And so, if eternal life is knowing Jesus Christ, then absolutely we have already entered that era. Uh, we woke up, so to speak, on Easter Sunday morning. Jesus Resurrection Day in a new heavens and new earth. That's one perspective. And it's a very Johannine one, that eternal life, even prior to the resurrection, relationship with Christ through faith um, is eternal life. Uh, That said, because we, we haven't experienced the final culmination and consummation of that relationship in a completely restored new world, we still have our eyes on the future. And so, um, it's actually easier to talk about eternal life now when you live in the suburbs. Um, it's much more clear in Haiti that we're, we've not entered eternal life in the fullness that, that means my children don't starve to death or drink poisonous water and so on. And so, it is, you know, George Eldon Ladd's old already but not yet thing that the vineyard picked up and so on. I, th- I think that's probably why we do that. And also because the Bible talks in both ways. And so, uh, even in the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, Jesus will sometimes very much talk about the kingdom of God. That's sort of how the synoptics relate to eternal life, the kingdom of God, that it's already here, it's among you, it's within you. Um, And yet, Jesus also, in those same books, will talk about when the kingdom comes and the kingdom banquet that's still forthcoming and who will be coming and 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 so you do have the you do have both perspectives already within the gospels yeah for me i i fully agree with all of that and uh you know uh brad you and i we overlap on the george eldon lad stuff because of our years in the vineyard i fully agree with that i i also think that For me, when I'm doing evangelism out in the developing world, the only paradigm, it seems to me, that they've ever heard is eternal life is what's going to happen um, if you have prayed and asked Jesus into your life, and then when you die, you'll go to heaven. It It is so much about a destination. Yep. And when I, and you and I have talked about this before, when I talk about abundant life, Christ came to bring it now and talk about what that begins to look like in the here and now, it's definitely a paradigm shift. Um, and because if it's, if it's just heaven, it so disempowers the gospel for right now. And yeah. I, don't, I, don't think it's, it, I don't think it's good enough news to say this is eternal life that you'll go to heaven. Now grit your teeth and hang in there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Let me push back at that a little bit, too, because while I also agree with what you just said, um, and here's why I agree with it, it's 
perhaps because we weren't delivering a gospel that delivers an abundant life now in any mm-hmm. way. So mm-hmm. you have to defer it, right? That said, if you preach an abundant life now and don't deliver it, it's like, well, wait a minute. Steve said that this abundant life, this eternal life, that, that I can engage it now, and then my child still died of bad water. <laughs> it's like, yeah. this is it? You're telling me this is the abundant life? I'm telling you, Steve, this is not the abundant life. And so, again, you have the tension, right? And uh, But it just, I, I think you're right. We, we just so delivered a deferred gospel that it's very, very disempowering. And the way that you guys not only preach the gospel, but do it, and actually do see redemption and lift happening in cultures and towns mm. and families, um, that, I, I think we, we ought to be thinking about the already much more. And, I mean, never mind our experiences, right? Also, the Gospel of John, there's just no, it's, it's all about now in John's gospel. The yes. Jesus of John, the Jesus of John has initiated eternal life and not just only in his finished work and resurrection after the passion. It's it's happening to all those who turn to that light. Um, so let me ask this question. Should we yep. stop asking the question and I, I'm we the royal we the the church in North America, at the very least, should we stop asking the question, do you know where you're going to go when you die? That, that is so often the question I hear when, when people are being presented with an opportunity to turn to Christ. Very often the question is, do you know where you're going when you die? And that's kind of the litmus test for them and it's as to whether or not it's time for them to pray this prayer. Do we need to stop asking that question or is that still a helpful question to get the conversation started? Well, it's certainly not a biblical question. I mean, there is, there is a sense of, of look at, there's a, you're going to have to give an account for your life because your life matters. Um, there is a final judgment coming and, and blah, blah, blah. But that actually wasn't part of the gospel preaching in Acts at all. That's used more for Christians in-house in terms of like what kind of life are you living. And so in ter- it, the, the afterlife judgment question was an in-house uh, challenge to the ethics of the church. It wasn't an evangelistic question whatsoever. And so, if you think about how the gospel is preached every single time in the book of Acts, it's always about God uh, uh, God sent his son to show us and reve- uh, to reveal himself to us. Um, you crucified him, but God raised him from the dead, and now Jesus is Lord. And as Lord, he's calling you to to turn to him and experience him. So, just like a really simple reading of how the evangelists always preach the gospel in the book of Acts uh, reveals that there is never a threat of afterlife torment or any kind of uh, future promise of heavenly rewards. The only, on one occasion it does talk about, there, there is a judgment day coming and Jesus is the judge doesn't talk about the verdict. And there is one occasion where Peter in Acts 3 talks about the restoration of all things, that that's forthcoming. That's the project. Well, join the project now, everyone, because the Lord has already come. So, yeah, I don't think it's a helpful question at all. It, it, it's certainly not a biblical one. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. And, um, and to just jump back a little bit to what we were saying a minute ago, 
for me, abundant life, where I'm really focusing is what I think John focuses on, which is relationship. This this yeah. living, vibrant relationship with Christ that carries us through everything. Because I agree, I don't I don't want to fall back into what the 19th century evangelists were were kind of kind of. If you'll come to Jesus, you'll get food. You'll get this. It'll be that. That that's not it at all. But. Um, uh, but it is about this intimate relationship. And I would say with you, uh, the book of Acts, so much is about who this incredible Christ is. You know, yes. that that's the focus. The focus yeah. is on who this Christ is, uh, not on what what's going to happen to us. So how do, let's bring that home a little bit. How do we make that practical in our everyday life as we are doing life with others and some are, are believers and have turned to Christ and others are not and we're sharing the gospel with them uh, how do we share eternal how do we talk about eternal life uh, Brad you talked about it's it's easier in one sense for us to understand it in the west because our kids aren't dying from bad water or what have you now impact nations our mission is primarily going to those who have bad water and, and adorning the gospel with uh, with clean water in this yep. example, but my neighbor down the street who may be struggling with addiction issues or, uh, or a child who's struggling with it, how do we, how do we adorn the gospel for them? How do we introduce them to this abundant life in Christ? Okay. So, I, well, I'm glad you brought up addiction issues because that is my model for it. And that is that, um, the gospel is that God God has re, uh, has been revealed through Jesus as uh, as as love, and that He deeply loves you and cares about you, and He cares about your children. And repentance, then uh, I don't I don't frame it on those words, but this is exactly what I'm talking about: is we move from self will to surrender, and so the call to repent would be: um, Could we? Would you? Are you prepared in the midst of of these great trials of your life, whatever they are, addictions, bankruptcy, stress, divorce, you name it, uh, could you surrender yourself, your life and your will to the care of this loving God? So it's surrendering to his care instead of trying to do it on my own. Hmm. And so the self-centeredness and self-seeking and self-will that ends up shipwrecking us is the thing we're turning from. It's a... It makes more sense to people than the word sin, but that's the essential issue in the in the in the Garden of Eden is self will, autonomy. I can do this. I can be this without God, and and we've just seen that, that that's a disaster. So, uh, surrendering our lives and will to the care of a loving God is how I generally frame it now, especially, and that works in twelve step meetings. That works in evangelism. That works, and yeah, by works excellent. I mean it, mm. it works for me as an articulation. Yeah, that's good. Um, well, let's talk about what happened on the cross, um, which is John 19. I wanted to talk a little bit about the lamb, because uh, you, Dad, you brought up a really interesting point when you were uh, talking about uh, John's portrayal of the crucifixion. And you pointed out, I'm just going to quote 
what you said here. You said Jesus was being crucified at the very time that the Passover lambs were being slaughtered in the temple. Uh, John starts his gospel just about with, you know, uh, behold the Lamb of God who takes mm-hmm. away the sins of the world. Um, presumably it's the same John who's uh, writing in Revelation 5 talking about, uh, and we've talked about this before, the, the Lion of Judah, and he turns and instead of seeing a lion, he sees a lamb as though it was slain. Um, what is the significance of the Passover lamb as it relates to the cross? Yeah, that's super important because we've got, you, you know, you've got multiple layers of sacrificial system that gets all confused when we think about Christ's sacrifice. Well, let, let's just um, leave all the complexities of that behind for a moment and just say this is the Passover lamb. And so what's happening there is John is reflecting on the meaning of Jesus' death and the significance of Jesus' death Um using the symbol the symbolism or typology of the exodus and that just as the people of god were in bondage to pharaoh and redeemed from that bondage so we have been in bondage to satan sin and death and are being redeemed from that bondage this is the world's exodus from that how does the lamb play into that well certainly we know that the the passover lamb was not sacrificed in the temple. It was not to appease the wrath of an angry God. It was not about punishing the lamb in your place. None of those things. The Passover lamb was simply this. It was, it was, um, it was slain. It was, it was slain for a meal. And so then it becomes the foundation of our Eucharistic meal. This is the Passover lamb. Um, and what does it do? It causes death to pass over us. That is, um, when the Passover lamb, the blood of that lamb, was was painted on the doorpost in the sign of the cross, you could say. There's horizontal and, and, and vertical. Um, what happens? And, and Yahweh says that those who, who paint this over their doorpost, um, I will protect you from the destroyer. And so there's ambiguity in the Old Testament about, okay, is God the destroyer? Is he sending the destroyer? Is he protecting us from the destroyer? Well, there's no ambiguity when you get to John. It's the thief who's the destroyer, and the Passover, and, and, and that destruction is death. And so Christ becomes this Passover lamb through whom death passes over all those who identify with him and eat of his feast, the, the marriage supper of the lamb in that sense. It's a, it is foreshadowed by the Eucharist. So that's what I would do with, I would, I would make it very much about, don't confuse this with the Day of Atonement. It's not that. This is Passover. Don't, don't confuse this with, oh, we're offering this to God. It's, well, no, we're welcoming God by eating it. <laughs> we're partaking of the very thing that saves us from death and from the destroyer. So that's kind of the short form that I would work on with that. It's also interesting John, in John's Gospel, it is happening the day of the Passover, where, uh, let's see how this works. It's a different day of the week. Matthew, yeah. Mark, and Luke have it, you know. Um, John's not mistaken about it. He didn't get the day wrong. He's just, fo- he's just writing his narrative in a way that really focuses in on this theme, that Christ mm-hmm. is the Lamb. So what would you say to those who might say, well, somebody got it wrong. Either he did or the other three authors did. No, I, I, I just don't think wrong is, 
is uh, it's not about right and wrong. It's about that that John prioritizes his theological point yes. ahead yeah. over over factual details, and he does this constantly. He's got the angels at a different place in the tomb on Resurrection Sunday um, to make a point. So, where are the angels? In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, well, it's one or two. They're outside the tomb. They're at the door of the tomb. Uh, one's sitting on a rock, whatever. In John, the angels are at each end of the slab where Jesus had lain, signifying that this that this is the Holy of Holies and, and that this was the mercy seat. So, they're the cherubim of the Ark of the Covenant. Well, did he get it wrong? No, he, he, he got it true. So, truth is more important to him than historical factual details. And the, the theological truth is that Christ is our mercy seat and his resurrection has, is, he is the Shekinah glory uh, that would rest on that seat. So, I think that, yeah, that's how I would frame that. It's his <laughs> beautiful theological truths that need to be expressed through the story. Yeah, that's good. You touched on such a huge issue that we won't go down the road very much, but the... I think the inerrancy guys, the literalists, they see everything as factual. Years ago, I used to teach English literature to grade 11 and 12 students, and, and I mm. would show them poetry. Is this factual or is this truth? And of course, right. it's truth. And it never, it doesn't need to be factual to be more true. Yeah, so, I mean, the parables are obvious illustration of that too aren't they is the prodigal son story true of course it is could you have gone with a video camera and recorded it no (laughs) i mean you could record jesus telling it but he's telling us the truth through these pictures and john john is willing to do that and we just have to not be offended by that it's in fact um maximus the confessor talked about this obsession with literalism as being very fleshly and carnal and evidence that you didn't have the illumination of the spirit in understanding the spiritual truths of the scriptures he's quite hard on on literalism that way so yeah and of course as soon as you start going very far into the prophets you're you hit (laughs) blind alley after blind alley if you must be factual and, yeah. Uh, so th- this is very good. I'm glad you brought that up. So, but let me just as a counterpoint, because actually the very last question I, I jotted down for today was from uh, last week's episode, where you're you're discussing the resurrection account and how you said John is establishing again the historical fact of Christ's death and resurrection. Uh, Christianity stands or falls on the historical events surrounding yes. Christ's death and resurrection. If if Jesus was not a real man on this earth who died and rose again, then it, everything else on which our faith is based is false. As Paul said, we should be pitied more than any other man. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. So, uh, I, just to make a point, while mm-hmm. I agree with that, yeah. uh, that's not a consensus among Christians. <laughs> so, okay, that, which is a troubling thing for me. And, and that there are those who there are those who would say it doesn't really matter if he actually lived, actually died, or actually rose again. And I'm like, yeah, it's pretty, like, it's essential. But it's odd that it's not, it's not, it, it's odd that we have those in the faith that, for whom that's up up for grabs. And I think, I think we're going to have to stand on that one and say, no, this, like, really matters. Yeah. And 
And while John will tinker with details about those events uh, in order to make theological points, he, he outright tells us that the factuality of, of the person and the death and resurrection, resurrection, it does matter to him. And so he himself delineates that quite yes. clearly, I think. Yeah. And, and again, he wrote it at a time, probably a generation after the synoptics, at a time when, when this whole thing of Gnosticism was starting to rise up. And, uh, well, we don't need to get into a long discussion on Gnosticism, but he was being very purposeful in the midst of, of the nuances, very purposeful, saying Jesus Christ lived in the flesh, died and rose again. And using symbolism, he's rooting it in the scriptures. And by scriptures, like when we say according to the scriptures, we mean the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's, his death and resurrection is symbolized, anticipated, and, and interpreted through the symbolic imagery of Old Testament um, narrative. Mm-hmm. So, so it's odd that the Gnostics were uprooted from that and they lose the historicity of it, whereas he's using symbolism to maintain the historicity of it. It's very odd, <laughs> uh, and, but it's how it's um, normative Christianity has always said that. Hmm. Okay, so let's talk about what happened on the cross. Uh, and Brad, you alluded to this a minute ago, and, and we didn't dig into it then, but now I want to dig into it in terms of atonement. Um, when, we know that when Christ died on the cross and he declared it is finished, that was essentially a victory cry, uh, a declaration of victory over the powers. And we've spent a lot of time this year talking about the powers that be and yeah. how Christ gained victory over them by uh, giving of himself. And um, But I, I want to know, nuts and bolts, how does Christ's death actually equate to victory? Uh how do, why does that mean why does it mean that Jesus died it means that he gained victory over death what happened there what actually happened on the cross okay so first of all I think that in the west we've over distinguished Jesus crucifixion and his death which aren't the same thing right he's still alive on the cross until he dies mm-hmm. he says it's a, it is finished before he's even dead um, but yeah, so we get in this problem where we distinguish the death, the, res- the crucifixion, the death, his descent into Hades, and his resurrection as like these separate things. Whereas in the ancient world, the cross was a metonym, or it, it would it was a summary of the whole weekend. So when he says it is finished, he's not only saying I finished doing something while I'm still alive here on the cross, but it is accomplished all that which. Um, is going to be necessary for the salvation of humankind and the restoration of all things. It is accomplished in my death, descent, and resurrection. So, so we ought not to we ought not to pull that apart too much and say, well, what did his death do, and what did his resurrection do? It's like it, it's all one package. All right. So then, what I where how I would relate that is, I would say it is both a revelation and. And a decisive act, or I, I would say a definitive revelation of the love of God, according to First John, 
the definitive revelation of love of God is self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. So it's a revelation, but it's not only a, resurre- a revelation, and yet it is the supreme revelation. This is God in clearest focus. God unveiled, not on white horse with the sword coming out, God enthroned on the cross, the mercy seat, of uh, the judgment seat, um, by which then it's not only a definitive revelation, it's a decisive act. And so you've alluded to that it's an act of victory. And I would strongly agree with that. Um, we might even say it's an act of judgment, too, because he says, now the prince of this world is driven out. So there Satan is judged and conquered. Um, and then also it's, it's a judgment seat in the sense that here is the love of God made manifest. And you've got the two thieves symbolizing two responses. So in that sense, it's a judgment seat, except he's not rendering the verdict. He's just revealing God as love. And now you render your own verdict. I, I receive him. I reject him. Um, but the victory that we talk about is his, primarily the victory over, over death, which is the wages of sin. So on the cross, he reveals that God is a radical forgiver. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So sin is dealt with through forgiveness. But then the consequences of sin also need to be dealt with. It's like, fine, you're, you're forgiven for your being a meth addict. But like, what about the consequences of being a meth addict? You have an overdose and you die. It's like he deals with the, the consequences of sin too. And he, uh, not just taking away um, uh, guilt, the guilt for sin through forgiveness, but also taking away uh, the, the, the wages of sin, which is death, by dying and rising. And, and raising humankind with himself. So, th- so we would, s- the short form of all of that is he reveals that God is love and he wins this great victory over Satan, sin, and death. Um, why that's all important to frame that way is because otherwise you end up with these kind of theologies where Jesus has to save you from God and, and you sever the indivisible trinity and you enter all kinds of uh, r- quite fundamental errors. And I'll add one other thing. Um, you mentioned atonement. Uh, that's become a problem as the English word has morphed. Um, atonement today often means something like appeasement. Um, when atonement was first coined as an English term, it did literally mean at one minute, reconciliation. And so, how, how does the cross uh, reconcile us to God? God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself uh, how so? Well, because as as human, as a human, Christ turns towards his Father. In, he turns humanity back home. He picks up the prodigal son. He re, and uh, and so God doesn't need to be reconciled to humanity. He never abandoned us or, or rejected us. Uh, but humanity needs to come back to the Father, and we just aren't very good at that. So Jesus does it for us. He vicariously surrenders um, to the uh, to his father and, and that's the reconciliation there so not atonement in the sense of appeasement but at one moment God and man become one again in this in this person of Christ to the nth degree on the cross so a lot of this is already happening in his life but forgiveness is already happening in his life healings already happening in his life but you get to the cross and now it's sort of this pinnacle 
where it happens for all time, for all people, and I say to the nth degree. He goes, he doesn't just go to the bottom, he goes to the very bottom, which is the, the depths of Hades, and comes back from there victorious. Hmm. So that's some of my first thoughts on that, or it's a, it's a summary of orthodox theology about it. Okay, this is the last commercial break of the season, I promise. A few weeks ago, I rattled off some of Impact Nation's highlights from 2018, and I thought I'd remind you of those things. This year, we have provided clean water for over 20,000 people. We've led journeys of compassion to seven different nations where thousands of people have responded to the gospel and dozens of churches were planted. Nearly 100 people have received our small business training. Women have been rescued from a life of forced prostitution, while others have been freed from prison or a life on the streets. Now, that may sound like we're tooting our own horn, but actually you donors are the ones who should be taking a victory lap. People from all over the world have given their time, money, talents, and resources to make all of this happen. Armed with your passion and the saving power of Jesus Christ, it is amazing what we can accomplish. We've got some remarkable things planned for 2019, but we can't do any of it without your help. Would you please consider giving a year-end gift to help Impact Nations demonstrate the gospel? Visit impactnations.com slash donate today. And now, back to the podcast, where we are about to get a brief lesson on the history of penal substitution. Brad will know much more than I do on this, but but it, we really get our first clear indication more than a thousand years into church history with, with uh, Bishop Anselm in England. He talked about uh, substitution. And then that was kind of taken further with the early reformers. But that's about as much of an intro as I'm willing to give because I'm with my friend Brad, who knows a lot more about such things than I do. One advantage is that I wrote my 185-page master's thesis defending penal substitution. So get out um, of town. <laughs> so those. So those. Were you who, doing uh, that in earnest? Uh, was that? I and was. And you've changed your mind since then. I absolutely repented, and <laughs> and I was doing it in earnest. So those who <laughs> I do have opponents who who say I caricature penal substitution. None of them have written a 185-page book defending it. Um, <laughs> but. <laughs> You know, maybe some of them did, but but then they should repent too, because there are some um, there are fundamental flaws in it around the nature of Christ and the nature of the Trinity, and that often doesn't get critiqued. So, in my initial critiques of it ten years ago, I would have I, I looked at um, what are we doing saying that God needed to punish? That's not forgiveness. Appeasement is not forgiveness, you know, and um, and that that God's need for retribution. Where does that need for retribution come? It's it's I don't see it. And but now I'm thinking, no, it's an even deeper problem in the ancient liturgies. So when you say traditional, we we mean recent and modern. That's that is precisely what I mean when I say traditional. Yep. Yes, <laughs> yeah, the the five hundred year old view. I can show you the page in John Kelvin's Institutes where he composes it in a way that had not been previously stated. And at the outset, he says, setting aside the creed. <laughs> He's talking about the Apostles' Creed. He's doing commentary on the creed. And he's setting aside the creed. And he, he, he has to do so to come up with penal substitution. Here, do you want to know history about it? I, here's a very fast history. Yeah. The two-minute history is that in about 1000 AD, as, as your dad said, Anselm comes up with this idea, why did God become man? 
Um, and it's because uh, his honor had been uh, insulted by our sin, and his honor needed to be satisfied, and his, and, but we couldn't do it. We could only perfectly, if we could perfectly obey, that wouldn't atone for anybody else. It would just be myself. So who's going to do it for everyone? It has to be God, but God can't do it unless he's man. So, so Jesus comes, and he satisfies the honor of God through perfect obedience. And as your dad said, Kelvin doubles down on it. And it's not the honor of God that needs to be satisfied. It's his wrath. And it's not through Jesus' perfect obedience. It's through punishment, violent death. So the violent death of Jesus becomes the means by which God's wrath is satisfied. And that this, this happens, you can see it on the cross, when the Father and the Son, where this, the, the, um, the Trinity, the, the fellowship of the Trinity is interrupted. Um, in fact, the Trinity is somehow severed. That's a heresy. We believe the ancient, the ancient, and in the Orthodox Church, we still say the ancient liturgy every single Sunday. We believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one in essence and undivided. If you, if your doctrine of penal substitution requires you to divide the Trinity, you are formally a heretic. Second. Some will say, well, okay, maybe it's just Christ's humanity, and now we're dividing the indivisible person of Jesus Christ between his humanity and his deity. And again, it's indivisible. So, the ancient church was very clear on this. Father, Son, and Spirit are one God, one in essence, undivided, and that Jesus Christ is one person in two natures, undivided. I, I have not seen any real effort to respond to that by my Reformed friends. Um, um, they usually will just ignore it or say, well, I need to go think about it more and get back. Or, or double down again and say, no, no, temporarily they were divided. I'm like, well, then you, that's, not the, that's not historic Christianity. That, mm. That's a, a modernist aberration. And um, so... So let me ask you this, though, Brad, because we... and. You quoted actually during during that podcast episode. You quoted Isaiah fifty three, and Isaiah fifty three. I'm going to actually read three different versions that are all completely different translations of the same text, mm-hmm. um, and they all three are so different that it leaves me completely scratching my head. But ultimately, before I read this, my question is: What was Isaiah talking about? Um, Isaiah 53 is, I, I think we would all agree, is a, a prophecy of uh, of Christ's coming, his incarnation, and of his death. Uh, and so this is Isaiah 53, verse 4. Uh, it's, uh, first I'm going to read uh, the English Standard Version, which says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Uh, and I'm just going to stick to one verse for now. Uh, so that's, that's that's the, the problem, by the way. <laughs> I, 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 fair enough. I understand, carry, and we'll, we'll come back carry to on. that. But it, it's this one yeah. phrase that I really want to understand what what it means. The uh, the New Living Translation, a completely different take. It says, "Yet it was our weaknesses he carried; it was our sorrows that weighed him down, and we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins." Yep. And then. The New English translation 
says, but he lifted up our illnesses, he carried our pain, even though we thought he was being punished, attacked by God, and afflicted for something he had done. Um, so that's, that's being punished and attacked by God. Now that says we thought, um, as does the... That's the prophecy, yeah. That's the so, prophecy right there. I mean, I'm, I wonder why the guys who did the ESV left that we thought bit out. Um, but is that Do they part have of, we considered him? ESV, we considered him? Uh, they may, one sec. Uh, what verse are you? Uh, verse 4. Mm-hmm. Um, we esteemed him stricken, so I guess esteemed would yeah. be considered in this case. So, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, so, so in all cases, it, it, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, so I, I guess uh, careful reading of that, and again, you, you never want to read a verse out of context or whatever, but a careful reading of that concept then is that Isaiah was saying, he was almost predicting, like, hey, we, we as humans assumed that God was lashing out effectively against himself, against another person of the Trinity, uh, and yet... That's that's not actually what was happening. Um, Correct. So why do we keep making that mistake? I don't know. I didn't. <laughs> well, you did for 185 pages, Brett. <laughs> I did. I, yeah, I, I did until I read more carefully, I guess. Mm. Um, I... And, and and some of that, I think, I was able to read more carefully. This I, I can't say it without sounding arrogant. I, I think the Holy Spirit opened my eyes and and showed me what what the words actually say. He, he, the Holy Spirit didn't show me something that's not there. The Holy Spirit took the blind the theological system that was blinding me from seeing those mm. words. Those yeah. words were invisible to me. I want to st- I want to stop you right there because uh, just to emphasize a point for our listeners that I think is really really important. The Holy Spirit didn't reveal something that wasn't already there. Right. Uh, it is a dangerous way to uh, hear to believe you're hearing the Holy Spirit or being guided by the Holy Spirit if it is contrary to what His written word says. His His Rama word, His spoken word, will always be in line with His written word. And I just I wanted to stop and say that uh, because I, I think it's really really important. Right, and and if your theological system requires you to ignore words <laughs> that like we considered him, then then your theological system is functioning as a blinder from the word that is there. Yeah. And I'm mm. confessing that that's what was happening to me. Now, there is a translation problem, too. It's a, it's a difficult passage to translate, and sometimes, question mark, by Bob Ekblad, based in his PhD studies in the Hebrew, comparing the Hebrew Masoretic text, which is our oldest Hebrew text, but it's from way after the time yes. of Christ. Yes. Comparing that to the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of Isaiah 53 that happened way be- before Jesus Christ. So it seems to me another kind of arrogance to say, I won't look at what the Greek, at how Jews translated this before Christ and take it to heart. So in that, in um, Bob goes through in, in his, um, in his PhD studies that he's summarized in this chapter of Stricken, um, 
that whenever possible, the Hebrew translators, these rabbis from before the time of Christ, consistently translated the Hebrews to make God not to blame. So they make it really clear that we considered him stricken by God, but it was our sins he bore. Um, That's what he was suffering, our griefs, our sorrows. But later in the chapter 2, it's even more dramatic. We still make that error because we read English translations of the Masoretic text that it says, it pleased the Lord to crush him. (laughs) Hmm. And that is not how the Jewish rabbis translated Isaiah 53. The very same verse they translated, it pleased the Lord to heal him. It please or cleanse him or of the plague or th- I mean this is whatever it is it's the Lord is doing this positive thing with the suffering servant before Christ comes. Then we have the Masoretic text um, tradition, um, which may also be very ancient, but our oldest manuscripts are post Jesus, and it's talking about and it's making God the one who's pleased to crush him. Does that sound like the nature of the Abba Jesus revealed? <laughs> My, my Septuagint the, translation, that's why I ran away to go get that. Yeah. The Lord wishes to cleanse him of his wound. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. what happens? Christ bears the sins and sorrows of all humankind, and the, what does the Father do? Punish him? To appease his wrath for it? No. The Lord cleanses the sins and sorrows of humanity in the person of his Son. That I think that's, that's a great translation, which no doubt is an interpretation that the rabbis are making. But I also want to say this. Isaiah could have thought that God was punishing the suffering servant and Jesus comes along and he reveals something different. In other words, Isaiah, is, Isaiah doesn't have the final word on what's happening on the cross. He's predicting something. Mm-hmm. But at Christ is a, no one has seen God at any time. But God, the only Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. So, I wouldn't be troubled to find out, you know, there's a lot of Old Testament texts where Jesus just sees it differently and proclaims it differently, as did his apostles. So, that's the other side of that. It's an important question, though, Tim. Thanks for, I mean, Isaiah 53 is key, but I think the whole thing, it's a prophecy of the mistake of penal substitution. Uh, uh, You may not even remember, but... but you and I got into a discussion on this seven years ago, and I said, yeah, but, and I opened up the scripture, and you came back with, but actually, this is what it says. Can I just throw in a commercial for people yeah. that are listening? Yeah. My friends know this. I, I really, really encourage us to get a good translation of the Septuagint. For I'm just going to reiterate what Brad said so that all of the guys who follow this podcast get it clearly. The Septuagint was a Greek translation that was the available Bible. It is the translation of Jesus, of the early church, of of the, the writers of the New Testament. So when he stood up in the synagogue, opens the scroll and says, the Spirit of the Lord has, appoint, has anointed me, he's reading well, he's the Septuagint. Pro- no, he's probably using Hebrew there, but what we have in the New Testament writings are in Greek, and the the dominant translation they're using is the, is the, the Septuagint. Septuagint. Gotcha. So I just want to say to people, uh, it was probably two years ago that I uh, I got actually an Orthodox study Bible and became aware in the reading of it 
you, it, for me at least, it was so much easier to see Christ in almost every page of my Old Testament. And it was so much clearer how early on they, we, we see the, the, the Trinitarian God revealing himself. So that's just a commercial. Yeah. I would encourage people to, um, you know, we, we're in an age where we love to get lots of different translations. Me too. Get one based on the Septuagint. I tell you what, uh, we'll we'll coordinate uh, after we hit the stop button here. I'll make sure when this podcast goes into our iTunes feed tonight uh, that in the show notes we've got a link to a couple that you might recommend. Okay. Yeah. I do have a quick quick footnote to that, and that is that um, there's a reason why it's more clear to you uh, seeing Christ in there, and that is that with the Masoretic text, no Jewish rabbi would tinker with the consonants. That's you just that's not done. But I was, I was told by a student of the head, previous head rabbi in Jerusalem that they were willing to work with the vowel points, which they knew weren't inspired and they weren't in any of the original, you know. The vowel points were added later. And therefore, you can move them and change them, and this affects your translation, such that in about 1,500 cases, it obscures things that would point more clearly to Jesus. Interesting. So, wow. that, uh, if that's the case, and I, I believe him, this is a, a man who learned Greek under Ratzinger and learned Hebrew under a head rabbi, and that, mm. that's, uh, that's significant. Yeah, it is. And so, it is. Not to mention that um, Protestant Bible chopped out a whole bunch of books 1,500 years after. Yes, it did. Christ. And I might say they're, they're really good books. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'm looking at the clock, and I realize there's there's another really big one that I want to yeah. tackle. So we're we're right. gonna do this. We'll we'll do we'll go fast. But um, during Dad, when you talked about the resurrection, John's account of the resurrection, you really spent time talking about Mary's role in that narrative, yes, Mary Magdalene, uh, and. I'm, again, I'm just going to, it feels weird to quote you while I'm sitting right next to you, but uh, you said Mary is the first person sent to proclaim the risen Lord. What does that make her? An apostle. Jesus is establishing things in the church, or sorry, John is establishing things in the church after one generation. It's a woman who's the first apostle of the resurrection. So my question, uh, and I'll throw it to you first, Brad, um, what was the role of women historically when John is writing this text? Like, is he needing to make this point? Uh, and, and is he making that point? Like, is he saying, hey, women have a greater role to play in the church than we're giving them right now? Uh, I don't know if he's consciously doing that, but it certainly is the implication in my mind. So first, and the early church did try to acknowledge us in certain, especially with titles. So for example, <laughs> the Theotokos, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, mm-hmm. becomes the quintessential um, um, disciple in, in the sense of she bore God within her, right? And then, and so they make a big deal about this, but also that the women could function in the fivefold ministry. So they call Fatina the woman at the well. Um, Fatina, Saint Fatina, equal to the apostles equal to the apostles. Um, they call Mary Magdalene apostle to the apostles. And that both uh, Mary and the woman at the well and probably others like the woman caught in adultery 
and many of the women in John's gospel end up becoming evangelists in the early church. I don't know. I don't know why um, they don't become priests and bishops and so on. Uh, I don't like that they don't, but the way they the way they try to preserve the importance of women is through these labels of apostle, evangelist, teacher. Saint Macrina, the teacher, with a capital T, who becomes the mentor of of um, her brothers Gregory and Basil, who end up influencing the creed. I mean, there's those women behind the men who who, who carry the apostolic tradition for sure. And I think it's time to recognize that more overtly. And, for example, in the Anglican, in the Church of England, when they were arguing about whether women could be ordained as bishops, this was uh, N.T. Wright's point. He stood up as the Bishop of Durham, and he said, Mary Magdalene was the first witness. And even then, the the apostles didn't believe her initially. (laughs) So... I think that's a very good reason to elevate the role of women, because John was, for sure. Okay. So, As was Jesus. <laughs> indeed, you know? yeah. Uh, all right, so kind of pick up where he left off and talk a little bit more about that, but I know just an hour ago you were telling me you've just been meditating on, on the further implications of this, or the, or the broader, deeper meaning of this. Uh, just in the last 24 hours you've been thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I also think that beyond the fact that she's a woman, she probably recognizes, even the name history's given her, uh, Mary Magdalene, as I said in the, in the thing, it, that was, she was Mary of the, uh, of the Roman camp, that she came out of uh, being a prostitute in the Roman camp. She is probably the most clearly broken person, uh, even by her title, by her name, uh, that we have. And there's certainly some broken people in the Gospels. And I think it is incredible and so significant that she is the first one and uh, that he says, Mary, he calls her by name, that um, I think it, it John is shouting, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. I think he is shouting the uh, a radical inclusiveness of the gospel, that even though I preach inclusiveness all the time, it still is always bigger than I think it is. Hmm. And uh, that is one of the things that's been rolling around in my mind. I spent all day yesterday on airplanes, and I just kept thinking about this uh, Mary of the of the Roman camp and uh, and look who she was and look at she's the first one he could certainly have appeared to John or Peter first he appeared to her that's all that I wanted to say hmm. I I was saying to a group of people recently <laughs> Everything Jesus did was inclusive. It was always come and see, come in, enter into communion with me. Mm-hmm. And anytime, I think that's a really good litmus test for us. Anytime we find ourselves suddenly using exclusive language, anytime we find ourselves uh, putting exclusive policies into the, into the church, things like that, we need to ask ourselves, uh, is this in line with 
what Christ called us to be, which is inclusive. Um, But (laughs) there is certainly some exclusive language in in the New Testament. And uh, I mean... We're, I've intentionally put this right at the very end of our oh, conversation, you're a but I, because I don't want to, I don't want to get bogged down in it. But uh, way back in episode twenty nine, uh, talking in John seventeen, uh, you, you, one of the great things I love about expositional study and, and teaching and preaching is when you when you hit a verse, when you're going verse by verse through a book, you can't just skip over a verse because it's immediately very obvious. So we stopped and we looked at John seventeen verse two, which says. Uh, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Uh, that phrase, to whom you have given him, uh, brings up that that understanding of he, there are some who have been chosen. And I don't want to get into all predestination, Calvinism, Arminianism, all that stuff. But there, every once in a while you do come across these texts where there is this hint of exclusivity like there's either you're in or you're out Um, and yet again to counteract that Paul says to Timothy in 1st Timothy 2 4 he desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth so is he always inclusive or is there an exclusivity to this as well like you either you're in the club or you're not I need to just ask the Lord to remove that veil from your eyes right now. And <laughs> no, seriously though, uh, seventeen verse two uh, says something profound, and it feels it feels like we skipped through the first half too easily. Just think about this. This is I'm going to read from the New Kingdom, the Kingdom New, the Kingdom New Testament. This is NT right, and just. Just listen to this, verse 2. Do this, so he's just said, Father, the moment has come, glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you. Do this in the same way as you did when you gave him authority over who? Who has the Father given Christ authority over? All flesh. That's who the Father has given Christ authority over. All flesh, so that he could give the life of God's coming age to everyone you gave him. He's just told you who the Father gave him. All hmm. flesh. <laughs> so while I while I want to honor your question, because I do think that it's still a real question, John seventeen two doesn't distinguish between all flesh and the few people the Father gave him. He's it, it's telling you who the Father gave him. All flesh. So that's why what he did, he did for everyone. In that sense, the gospel is all inclusive. Did you feel the veil just come off your eyes there? I, I did. I can see clearly now. The veil is gone. <laughs> but um, but I know where you're coming from because we've chatted about it, and that that there is this. There are texts in the New Testament where inclusives, inclusivity seems to extend to all people because Christ died for all people, welcomed all people, and is not willing that even one should perish. At the same time, there's other texts that it's like, but we're chosen, um, and we're beloved, and, we're, and, and, and it's like the in-group who's received him. And it's like I would say that um, a couple things are happening there. Is one is, yes, those who have received him come into the experience of what Christ did for all. He forgave all, but I only experience that forgiveness in a way that changes my life 
through a response to Jesus Christ. Um, that's not being exclusive, I don't think. I, I, I think what it's just saying is that that there is that there's an experience of eternal life that is engaged through my participation in it. And then B, um, in the Old Testament, God's chosen people, chosen for what? Chosen to be the only people saved? Oh, no. God's chosen people, Israel, were chosen for a mission, and that was to bring the light of God, of Yahweh, to the nations. And they failed to do that, but Jesus didn't. And so Christ becomes the chosen servant who fulfills Israel's destiny and then in in him then in him then we had the church then is chosen chosen as ex- for exclusive salvation no chosen to pick up um that mantle of ministry chosen to be a priesthood for all nations and to deliver the light to all nations and and uh, anybody and and so it, that but now that priesthood is open to all as well and so it's not just only Jews who get to be the priests who put the put the light out there um but jews and greek slave and free male and female we're all part of we're chosen we're elect we have become the elect of god for that mission and so that's how i would do with that that's good great does that work for you tim <laughs> yes i love it yeah it's marvelous and yeah that you Brad had emailed me actually a little bit of that stuff this morning and that's why i wanted to bring it up because for me it was very uh, that missional cons- uh, portion of of the elect, I think, was really really helpful for me. Um, cool. And so. we need to regain that. I, I know this is given what I do. You know, we're well, taking people out into it. the front lines. <laughs> we need to regain that missional rather than I'm in mentality. Hmm. And um, yeah. I uh, want to say something about uh, something that's exclusive, and that is, you know, when we talk about John fourteen six. I'm the way and the truth of life. No one comes to the Father but through me. We're, we're not saying that no one had ever known no one had ever known God before Jesus. Like Abraham is a friend of God. Mm-hmm. Um, Moses fellowship with God face to face. David is a man after God's own heart. So we're not. I don't think Jesus is saying no one's ever known God unless they became a Christian or else. But it does seem like he is saying something very exclusive there. And I, I would say it's this. And I learned this from my friend, Mercy Aiken, who works with Jews and Muslims and who, who asked her about John 14.6. Have we talked about this before? It's a, <laughs> she, uh, she says, uh, while many people knew God primarily by his name, and, when, and, and so Hagar knew God by a name she gave him, uh, the God who sees me. Moses knew God by God that God revealed, Yahweh. Um, but David does something new. There's a breakthrough, and he begins talking about my God, and then he inserts that in their hymnal so that, in the, that the people of God are now talking about God as my shepherd, my strong tower, my deliverer, my God, my God. That's a breakthrough in religion um, and, and, and religious development. But then you get to Jesus, and he's like, he does something else that's out of this world. He begins to call him my Abba, my Abba, my Abba. This is a new level of intimacy, not previously known in anybody's relationship with God. And then he says to the disciples here, when you pray, pray this, our Abba, our Abba, our Abba. And, um, and so even those who have had authentic spiritual experiences and faith practices like Cornelius and Acts, mm-hmm. he knew God. 
and God knew him, and God heard his prayers, and God calls him acceptable before he's a Christian. But Peter's conclusion is not, well, then he doesn't need Jesus. Peter's conclusion is he is now ripe for the revelation that Jesus gives, that God is his Abba, and he gives him the spirit, the Holy Spirit falls on him, so he's the spirit in him now that cries out Abba. And I think that's what's going on at the end of John 17, when he says, Righteous Father, even the world didn't know you, but I've known you, and these ones have known that you sent me. I have made your name known to them. What, Yahweh? No, Abba. Yes, and I will make it known so that the love with you, which you love me may be in them and I in them. And so now, you know, I've been working on this. I, I'm sorry to go long, but I, I just was okay, talking to really a, good. a yoga person who I taught to hear God 10 years ago, listens to God, talks to God, practices the presence of God every day, but wouldn't identify as Christian. And, I'm, and, and questioned why I would think Jesus is exclusive when she knows God. And I know she knows God. And I said, well, just what I said to you, I said, let's try something. Why don't you why don't you just when you do yoga, instead of saying om or using these mantras that you learned from Hindus and Buddhists, try this, try Abba. And then I said, Oh wait, why don't we do it right now? So she's like standing in front of me, she closes her eyes, does this, and she goes, Abba. And she Abba. Abba. And I said, What happened? <laughs> and she said, He's in me. I always knew he's beside me, but when I said Abba, he was in me, and it's like my heart opened up, and I had total access like I've never had. This is what happened to Cornelius. This is what Jesus revealed. And so, all are included in what Christ has done, but Jesus exclusively has revealed God as our Abba, and Jesus alone has imparted the spirit that cries Abba from within us, by which we have complete access. And so, um, I thought I'd leave that story with you as an example of uh, that while we're inclusive in terms of this is for everyone, at the same time we're saying Jesus is utterly unique in his revelation of of, of Abba. Does that make sense? It does, but let's, I want to clarify. So, are you are we saying, though, that that exclusivity reaches a point where the only way to the Father, and I, I really like the illustration you just used because you, you, in your example, she says, well, he, he's always been beside me, but now I, I know I've got gained the revelation that he's in me. Is the only way to gain that revelation through belief in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and, and as the Son of God? I want to say that maybe saying belief in is too strong. I want to say the only way is through Jesus. Not the only way is through belief in Jesus. You see, the difference is Jesus is our Savior. My belief isn't my Savior. Hmm. And so, Jesus may reveal God as Abba even prior to my belief in him. She just did it as an experiment to please her friend. But the moment she went there... It fell on her the way it did for you know Cornelius, and so um, we. John Wesley would talk about this. Billy Graham would talk about this. Um, uh, Arch, you know, Patriarch Bartholomew talks about this. That when people turn to the light, they may experience God as the light, 
and even experiencing him as a as their indwelling as the indwelling presence of, of Abba before they know the name. But it's only because of the one with the name. It's not because they know the name. It's because the one with the name, Jesus, has done that. And I, I say that because I, I just had a uh, a drug addict come do uh, amends with me. And I was representing the church, and this addict had judged the church and and had never become a Christian because the church, the only Christian she knew had abused her, excluded her, and in fact sexually abused her. She's like, she, she could not know God through the name of Jesus. But because of Jesus, 10 years ago when her soul was leaving her body during one of her overdoses, she saw a light. She reached out to that light. And instead of going to that light, that light came to her and began to indwell her. And she began praying to that light 45 minutes a day for the last 10 years, not knowing or even being able to know that Christ alone made that possible. She couldn't use the name because the name meant sexual abuse, right? And yet Christ was not willing to withhold the light from her until she bought into the name. He began the relationship and led it through a 10-year process by which now she was ripe enough for me to hear say, I want you to know that the name, that light has a name. And it's, well, Abba, but also Abba revealed in the person of Jesus. And then I, told, I told, got to tell her gospel stories about how Jesus treated women hmm. in contrast to how Christians have treated her as a woman. Hmm. And so... I don't know that she'll that she'll become a Christian. I just know she's met the light, prayed to the light, welcomed the light, and I asked her, "Where's the light?" Because you were reaching out. She said, "Oh, it's in my heart," and I can hear the light speaking to me. And like, I'm telling you that the light has a name. So it's only because of Jesus, not only because of her belief in Jesus. If that makes sense, it does. Yeah, but she needs to know, <laughs> so she does. Yeah. Any other thoughts on that? Well, no. (laughs) (laughs) Brad, I am really happy that we finished what has been a very long series, 33 hours or something. I'm really glad that we finished with you. Yeah. Uh, Not only because you're my dear, dear friend and, uh, you know, somebody who really continues to teach me so much, but because the gospel... The gospel that he's given you, and I hope he's given me, is a beautiful, beautiful gospel. And uh, he's gifted you to articulate the beauty of that gospel. So I am so glad that this is how we wrapped up this very lengthy series. Hmm. Thanks for coming. Agreed. Thank you, and thanks for your very good what about questions, because they are the right questions that, that up through which Christ leads us forward. And hopefully 10 years from now, we'll see it much more clearly and, and that it'll even be a hundred times more beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Hey Brad, is there anything you want to plug any, uh, any of your activities that you'd like to direct people towards these days? Wow. I just, uh, it's on my heart to share about somebody else's thing. And that is you had used the phrase, come and see. There is a magnificent, um, radio play of the Gospels that's very faithful to the Gospels called Come and See online. And um, chapters of it are free, and then I think you can do added content. And it's it's uh, produced, and part of the acting is by a guy named Boyd Barrett. Boyd Barrett, 
come and see. And and you must put your headphones on, and then you can hear the crowds and, and sounds and different voices. Mm-hmm. And this is the ongoing thing theme. Come and see, come and see, come and see. And so it's like you step right into this very faithful telling of the gospel. Oh, and I would yeah. commend people just to Google that, try check it out, because uh, it's been a real blessing to me, and I thought I would mention that. That's great. I love it. I will link to that in the show notes as well. Fantastic. Awesome. Well, thank you, Brad. Um, so this is the end. This is the final episode of season one of the uh, the very first season of the Impact Nations podcast. Uh, we hope you have enjoyed it. Um, you want to give them a little teaser as to what's coming up in 2019 for the podcast? Well, the the next one uh, will be shorter, but uh, just a. Uh, some teaching and then discussion around um, the Lord's Prayer, particularly the the six petitions of the Lord's Prayer. And I'm going to gather some friends and I'll share a little bit and uh, then we'll interact on that. Yeah, so I think each episode of that, that'll be a shorter series, probably about eight weeks, but uh, and probably perhaps shorter episodes, although I'm happy for them to go longer too, but it'll be very much a a dialogue and and things Mm -hmm. like that. You'll do a bit of teaching and then just lots of... Questions and answers, things like that. Very, very similar to what we've been doing here. So, uh, so stay tuned for that. That'll be probably coming out uh, in about six months. Uh, in the meantime, be blessed. Uh, ImpactNations.com/slash/Christmas. Uh, if you're doing some last-minute Christmas shopping, for those who don't know what to get them, uh, get a gift for uh, for the poor in the Impact Nations Christmas catalog, uh, and then you can even print out a card and give it to a loved one and say, "Hey, on your behalf, I supplied a family with safe drinking water," or "I." rescued a girl uh, who's uh, in the midst of a crisis that's how it works (laughs) i thought it was on your behalf we gave a poor family a a tie and a pair of socks (laughs) just like every other year (laughs) but that'll be in next year's catalog that's (laughs) a good idea Uh, all right well thank you everybody for joining us again thank you brad it's good to see you Well, thus concludes the first season of the Impact Nations podcast. My name is Tim. I've been your host, and I hope this has been a helpful resource for you. If you've enjoyed this series on John, send me a quick email at podcast at impactnations.com. I'd love to hear from you. Tune in again in a few months, and we'll have a good chat about the Lord's Prayer. In the meantime, if you'd like to make a year-end donation to Impact Nations, just head to impactnations.com slash donate or impactnations.com slash Christmas. Either way, you're going to be bringing hope to the poor. Have a very Merry Christmas and may God bless your socks off in 2019.